Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. Uh, love to hear those testimonies. At this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80 is our passage today as we continue our study of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. And that passage can be found on page 856 if you are using a church Bible, page 856. Now, if you are new here or relatively new, or, or even if you're not new, actually, uh, what drives the pulpit here at Hawaii Kai Church is, is expositional preaching through books of the Bible. And what that means is, is that we try our best to make the content and the main points of the text be the content and the main points of the sermon in a way that you can see that what we are preaching comes from this book. And we want to preach through the entire text and not just selected portions. We're not trying to pick and choose what is easier to preach, but we want to give to you full disclosure. And this is instead of, of thinking of a topic or a message that I think would be good for a church and then trying to find verses to support my message or topic. We desire instead to let the text and the word drive the preaching. Now, sometimes it is necessary to hit certain topics and find supporting text, but we feel that the steady diet of the word of God, we feel that expositional preaching through books of the Bible is the best application of the charge found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And that's who we're ultimately preaching in the presence of. There's a gravity here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And so we want to be faithful to this charge in the very presence of God himself, that we will preach his word and not our own word, and that we will not skip around or avoid uncomfortable verses, which I think is becoming more and more unpopular to do just that. But we believe in the word of God. Let me read you a quote by Mark Dever. He says, God's Holy Spirit creates his people by his word. We can create a people by other means, and this is the great temptation of churches. We can create a people around a certain ethnicity, we can create a people around a fully graded choir program. We can find people who will get excited about a building project or a denominational identity. We can create a people around a series of care groups where each feels loved and cared for. We can create a people around a community service project. We can create a people around social opportunities for young mothers or Caribbean cruises for singles. We can create a people around men's groups. We can even create a people around the personality of a preacher. And God can surely use all of these things. But in the final analysis, the people of God, the church of God, can only be created around the Word of God. We believe that to be absolutely true. Salvation and the building of God's church is really something which is supernatural. It's by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God which shows to us the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's not something we can architect or we can build with gimmicks and fads. God builds his church, and his word is the means. 
And so our ministry success, so to speak, we believe is measured in our faithfulness to these means, and our growth is not to be determined merely by how many chairs are filled with people, but by a people who really recognize these words as God's very own. And so with that being said, we are in Luke chapter 1, verse 67, as we continue our study through the book of Luke. And before we look at the text, would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and and today we ask that you would show to us wonderful things in it. We ask you to build your church, only you can. By the Holy Spirit, God, would you build your people up and help us to know you, to really know you truly. Help us to find our greatest joy in you. Help us to realize more and more just how much it is that you love us and make that love captivate us so that we would not be enamored by anything lesser. Would you please save today? We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The question that had been left in the minds of Luke's readers at the end of the last passage, where a baby had been born to a very elderly, very barren, childless couple, and named not after his daddy or after any of his relatives to carry on the family line and legacy, but the baby is given the name John instead. The the question that had been left in the minds of Luke's readers is the same question that all who witnessed John's birth and circumcision and naming were asking, and that is, what then will this child be? What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the last verse where we are left hanging the last time we looked at the book of Luke. It's a miraculous conception, a very unusual birth. His own dad was utterly silent for nine months because he was mute because of his initial disbelief. The only way he could communicate was through a writing tablet. But when he does finally write, name the baby John, not Zachariah Jr., Zechariah is suddenly able to speak again, and the very first thing out of his mouth is worship. It's praise to God. He was mute in unbelief, and now he's worshipful and audible when he finally does believe. And it's in our passage today that we get to see what kind of praise fills his mouth. This psalm, this prophecy, this song in our text has been called the Benedictus, which is a Latin word pointing to blessing. This is a song of blessing. And this song is really about the blessing of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We read in verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from all our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The way that Zechariah and Luke begin to answer the question, what then will this child be? Miraculous boy given to a barren couple, the hand of God with them, what then will this child be? The way that Zechariah and Luke begin to answer that question has nothing yet to do with the child at all. The individual concerns of Zechariah, and what does this son mean to me personally? And to my wife, she's always wanted a baby. She never had to, uh, the ability to get one. Or our dreams for this child and our family and our ambitions for our own lives are completely swallowed up by something else altogether. And that is the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. And what it is that God is doing in their midst for their people, which is a wider and greater concern. Zechariah is thinking on much bigger terms than just little old me. 
centuries ago, long before Zechariah and Elizabeth had ever breathed in their very first breath of life, God had made promises to the nation of Israel, and not just one time, but through multiple prophets, through multiple time periods, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, verse 70, that God would visit and that he would redeem his people. And some of these prophecies were very specific, like Psalm 132, 17, where it says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame but on him his crown will shine. That doesn't mean King David is going to actually grow a horn out of his body. For the horn stood for strength, like the horns of a bull stood for strength. When you see those horns, you feel that strength. And God promised that his anointed one, his Messiah, would have this strength to the point that his crown and his kingdom would be obvious. And anyone who opposed him would be put to shame. This Messiah is going to be a conquering king who no one can stand up to. And the reason why this horn, verse 69, is in the house of his servant David is because God had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that a child from his own line, his progeny, will be this forever king with this forever kingdom that will be established by God himself, the Messiah, the Christ. That has not happened yet in the first century for the nation of Israel. And so Zechariah's greatest hopes for his life were tied intimately to his people's greatest hopes for their lives. There's a corporate solidarity here. There's no individualistic desire in this song that the, the people's good and God's kingdom is of such greater importance than merely my own personal happiness and my own little kingdom. I mean, the nation of Israel, God's people for centuries had been under foreign occupation and rule for 400 years. God hadn't sent a single prophet to the people. And they were languishing and wondering if they would ever see God's word ever fulfilled within their lifetimes. Even the most faithful eyes can grow weary with that amount of time passing. But every year they would rehearse this Exodus story, the Passover, God's people then were in captivity for 400 years too. And God visited them and God redeemed them from Egypt with a show of his might in the plagues and the grace of his redemption of Israel in the Passover, the Passover lamb. He led them through dry land by splitting a sea into two to freedom and out of slavery. And then God's enemies, his people's enemies were utterly destroyed they knew from their own history every year God's might and God's salvation in this sense. And it's here with this miracle child and the hand of the Lord with them that Zechariah is not consumed with thoughts like John's going to be a priest like his daddy. He's going to walk in my footsteps. He's going to have my smile. He's going to have that sweet jump shot. John's going to get into the best colleges to make me look better. Blah, 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 blah. No, but Zechariah is thinking, God has come to visit us again. God is going to bring his word to fulfillment. Every promise that his people have held so tightly to is finally going to happen. And he is so confident of this, especially over the last nine months of silence and contemplation upon the word of God. He's so confident of this that he actually speaks of the fulfillment of it as already in the past tense. Verse 1, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's as good as done. 
which is why the very first words out of his mouth are a burst of praise, worship, and blessing upon the God of Israel. Zechariah is very Israel-centered here. The God of his people, plural, not just the God of his special plan for my life, but the God who has made promises for generations is a God who is at work right now to bring those promises to fulfillment, and that fulfillment is certain. Our salvation is at hand. And so straight from the get-go, the individual concerns of Zechariah are completely swallowed up by something else altogether, and that is the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of his Messiah. Now, I want us to think about a principle here. What often happens to so many of us is the exact opposite of what is happening to Zechariah within this text. That somehow God's promises and his coming kingdom and what he is doing in the entire world That is often swallowed up with what God is doing with my own little life. We often do not think in greater terms than the claustrophobic confines of me, 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 and my family and how everything relates to this. For example, did you know that Christianity is actually the fastest growing religion in China, even though it is one of the most persecuted countries in the world? Even though the nation is thoroughly atheist and openly opposed to Christianity, the raw numbers for conversions are booming. And isn't that a continuing proof that the gospel will go forth to every tongue, tribe, and nation before the end will come? God is doing something in the world that he has promised he would do even in the most impossible places. And if our eyes could look a little bit further than just our own noses, our mouths might be filled with a little bit more God-centered praise, don't you think? And we could begin to feel a little bit of the joy that Zechariah is feeling in this text. I watched a, a, an update from Paul Washer's missions ministry, Heart Cry. If you don't know who Paul Washer is, he's, he's someone you might want to listen to on YouTube. But on Tuesday, he asked for prayer upon a particular group of Christian children in danger of death and violation. He says, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for prayer. Pray for these Christians, I can't disclose this country in Asia. I can't imagine what he might mean when the word violation is used in association with Christian children. And so all who watched the video pled to the Lord in prayer. And on Thursday, two days after, he updated, thank you for your prayers. The Lord has protected the children this week, but please continue to pray. That puts things back into perspective, for me at least, when I'm lamenting the rising lumber costs and I have a broken fence to fix. Or our ongoing discussions in our Wong house of what we should do for the kids' education. How do we best prepare them to live in this world and prepare them to live in the next one? Helps me see further than my own nose. And it leads me to worship our God for his word in making the Messiah, in making Jesus Christ known and his kingdom furthered to the ends of the earth. To properly worship our God, we must come to an understanding more and more that there is something much bigger than our own lives. And that is the very plan and purposes of God. Zechariah and Luke are showing to us that the question, what then will this child be? can only be understood in light of something much, much bigger than the child himself. 
Ligon Duncan, he says this, our lives are about the kingdom of God displayed in all the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are to bear witness to him in all that we say and do. That's why Jesus can say that if you're not ready to leave your father and mother and your sister and brother and to follow me, you're not worthy of me because Jesus is bigger than those things. Even as he wants us to care deeply about our families and to love them as he has loved us, so also he wants us to value his kingdom and his person more than anything else. There's a God-centeredness about Zechariah's song here that teaches us the kind of God-centered lives that we are to live. And so Zechariah's mouth is filled with worship because he knows that even this precious son of mine is part of something much, much bigger than his own personal aspirations. We continue in verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The very purpose of deliverance from enemies, the point of redemption, even from slavery, the goal of this kind of salvation is worship. Look at the last two verses again here. That we, that we, that's a purpose statement, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Being freed and being redeemed is not an end in itself. The people of God are freed to serve the Lord with our whole being. This has always been the case. When God had called Moses to be the instrument by which he would free Israel from slavery and oppression in Egypt, Exodus 3.12, God tells him there, but I will be with you. I'm going to be with you, Moses. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see that? Their freedom is not for freedom's sake. Freedom is given by God for worship's sake. This is the same message which is delivered to Pharaoh at the time as well, not just to Moses, but to the guy who's actually oppressing God's people. Moses is supposed to tell Pharaoh, Exodus 7, 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Why let the people go? Why set them free? that they may serve the Lord. That's what Zechariah is blessing God for, that a people might be gathered by the Messiah to be God's very own servants. And brothers and sisters, this is the very same concept within the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not forgiven by the shed blood of the Son of God and freed from the power of sin in his resurrection for forgiveness sake alone. So that we, we just get a Avoid hell and be free to live however we want to live. No, we are forgiven and freed from the power of sin and death so that we might serve the Lord, our God, with our whole beings. Matthew Henry says, note, the great design of gospel grace is not to discharge us from 
but to engage us to and encourage us in the service of God. Just like Moses' cry from Pharaoh was never, let my people go so that they can go live whatever they want. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Jesus' cry to the Father is not forgive them so that they get to avoid hell and live however they want to live. No, it's to forgive them and free them so that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. And to really know God is to really love God. And to really love God is to want to serve him in worship. Friends, make no mistake. We are all serving something or someone. We all are all the time. We're all serving someone or something. The only question is who or what is it? The point, the purpose, the goal of our salvation from sin and death and hell is so that we might know God and enjoy God and worship him forever and ever so that we might be a people of his own possession. And this, Zechariah says, is a worship that is without fear. And there's, a, there's an appropriate fear of God. There, there must always be some level of fear of God in one sense in reverence, uh, in respect, in honor, like a, a son to his own father, like a creature to his own creator. But it's not this slavish fear or punitive fear where we serve begrudgingly or fearfully because we don't want to get punished. My kids at home, I can take their video games away, and they're afraid of that. So they can obey in a way where they don't honor me. They're honoring their video games. That's, that's not... That's not the fear. That's, that's that slavish fear is not what God wants. There's a, there's a freedom in our worship without that kind of fear, without fear of the punishment, that as imperfect and as sinful as we continue to be, we can come to the throne room in great confidence because of Jesus Christ, not in a spirit of bondage, but in a spirit of adoption. It's a worship that is without fear. And we are also to serve God in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, the text says. There's a a single-mindedness to the word holiness, a a God-centeredness, a living for his glory above our own little glory, his will above our own will, this purity of purpose that hates the distraction and the deceit and the evil of sin that is our high aim in how we serve the Lord with our lives. We are to be a holy and righteous people set apart from him. And so the goal of redemption, deliverance, freedom, salvation is this holy and righteous worship But even this is rooted in mercy. Look again at verse 72, to show mercy, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What is promised to the fathers and sworn to Abraham, we get the benefit of it somehow. And Zechariah knows his Bible. He's recalling something that occurred 2,000 years before him, 4,000 years before us. Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, Abrahamic covenant, the gist of which God would make from this one man, Abraham, a people, a nation that in him somehow, all the families of the earth could be blessed. This is not just about Israel alone anymore. 
This is about the entire world, the nations, Genesis 17, 6, from which God would form a people to be his own. And here's the mercy of it, that we somehow are given the benefits of a promise given to someone else. I mean, we have nothing to do with our salvation, brothers and sisters. This is according to a promise of God given to a guy we've never met. And this is purely an act of God's mercy. It's because God swore an oath upon himself. And you know what? Abraham didn't even earn it. Genesis 15, I'm going to give you this covenant. I'm going to fulfill both sides of it. This is unilateral. I'm just telling you what I'm going to do for you because I want to do this for you. It's mercy. The very fact that you guys have a Chinese-Korean preacher shows that the Abrahamic covenant has been coming to pass for the whole world. The very fact that we're at a church in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that worships God so freely, and we're not Israelites, shows us God's great mercy to the nations. And somehow we right here can be his very own. We continue in verse 76, and, and you know what? The, the question that's been hanging over our text, what then will this child be? Remember, John's born. This is a context for this whole song. He's circumcised in name, given to an elderly, barren, childless couple. What then will this child be? Zechariah finally, after talking about the salvation of God for Israel and the nations to free us to serve him wholly, he finally gets to talk about his kid. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so what then will this child be? The whole community is focused on John, miracle baby. This baby's going to be somebody. And Zechariah and Luke again show to us that John's life only makes sense in light of the bigger purpose and the greater plan. John is going to be the prophet of the Most High as he prepares the way of the Lord, the Messiah. He rolls out the red carpet for this anointed one. The sum of his entire life is that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He greater than I. You see those stickers everywhere. John 3.30, which is what makes him great. And what makes us great, brothers and sisters, any of us, we are great to the degree that we prepare the way of Jesus Christ to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God. While Zechariah, in his heart of hearts, has really been Israel-focused, maybe his own personal mind has been really political, national, rescue us from Rome like you rescued Israel from Egypt so many moons ago. But here by the Holy Spirit, he shows to us the heart of a deeper and a truer salvation. Because our main issue is not political in nature. It's not. Our main issue is, is not who's a president. Our main issue is not financial in nature. Our main problem is not with this country or this nation or this oppressor or that one or this policy or that. Our main problem is sin. And we've sinned against a holy and a righteous God who hates sin. And by virtue of who he is, he has to punish it. 
And yet we have in this prophecy of the one preparing the way for Jesus a pointer to the tender mercy of God. That though we are sinful, we might have a salvation in the forgiveness of sins. What we need most, what humanity needs most, is to experience the love and the forgiveness of God himself, secured by Jesus Christ upon the cross. He pays our debt in our place. He rises from the grave, which frees us from the power of sin. And the effect is such that the visual is a sun rising upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. When John the Baptist gets older and begins to preach, he begins to preach about repentance of sin to prepare for the coming of Christ. He proclaims that with all of his might because we have to turn from the path of sin to go on the path of peace. And we can actually have peace with God who we've offended so deeply because God has sent his son, the Christ, the Messiah, the conquering king, the horn of salvation, the one who destroys his enemies. God has sent his son first to die on a cross before he comes again as a conquering king. That's mercy. That's tender mercy. That we can have peace with God, Romans 5, 6. For a while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, while we're still doing it, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, enemies of God, that's what we were. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. There's no greater love in all of the universe than the love by which Christ loved his enemies who were in the process of offending him deeply, that he would shed his own blood for us. Whenever I hear testimony like we heard today, I, I love hearing how God saves and he forgives. It's, it's so different and unique, and yet it's always the same way. He chases us down. There are lost people growing up in Christian homes. Yes, the gospel, that's true, that's true, that's true. And it's not until he chases us down, like we heard this morning, that a young lady can feel the gravity of sin for the very first time. And then what does she say? Sweet relief sweet relief at her transgressions being forgiven. Testimonies, hearing testimonies, that often causes me to reflect on my own, that the entirety of my life before Jesus Christ, I didn't know it then, but I know it now. It's characterized by darkness. You can't really see where you're going, though you think you can. You don't really know what you're living for or what the end of this path really is. It's literally the shadow of death. And then the gospel love of Jesus Christ is like beams of light, which first hurts your eyes because it hurts to really see our condition for what we really are. I'm destined for death and death eternal. I didn't know it. Now I can see it. And yet this is what we must confess so that we might receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that we might have the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of our sins all owing to the tender mercy of our God. And it's like sunrise on the darkness 
beams of light in the shadow of death, and it guides our feet to peace. Some of us are not at peace with God this morning. Some of us are not. And the light is such right now. The gospel of Jesus Christ beckons you to turn away from your sin and the darkness in which you're living and come to know the tender mercy of God in the forgiveness of sins. Have salvation by his grace so that you might be freed from your sin to serve and worship and enjoy this God forever and ever. True salvation has nothing to do with Rome and everything to do with being at peace with God. And by this Messiah, Zechariah is proclaiming to us that we can have this peace. And this miracle son's entire life is to prepare us for this exact peace with God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the light of Jesus Christ. He really is our sunrise. That we can pass from darkness to light. That we can experience forgiveness of sin and understand and enjoy the peace that we can have with you. Help us more and more to realize that this salvation is not so that we can live however which way we want. But show us the joy. Show us the privilege and the honor of living for your glory rather than our own. Help us be righteous and holiness and holy and single-minded. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.